Hey, if you're looking for a new podcast, there's another show here at Earwolf you should check out. It's called How to Be Less Old. It seems to be aimed directly at me. Did you think MCM was a new party drug? Is Salt Bay a person or a town on Long Island? Well, Emily Foster and Deanna Chang are here to give you a shot of pop culture Botox. They're reaching out to the youth of America in an attempt to stay young and hip or, at the very least, less lame. I actually don't know the answer to either of those questions, but guests like Tara Lynn Barr, Jason Manzukis, and Casey Wilson share their expertise on the latest fashions, phrases, and trends that they're opting into or out of. Subscribe to How to Be Less Old in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hello, the internet, and welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the editor-in-chief of Cracked. And before we get into this week's episode, next live show is Saturday, June 10th, 7 p.m. at UCB Sunset. Guests include Daniel O'Brien, Jamie Loftus, and Dave Schilling. A great get. He's written for The Ringer, Grantland, Vice, Bleacher Report. They're going to be talking about insane behind-the-scenes stories from movies and TV shows. So a lot of movies from the 70s were just months-long coke benders. John Belushi and Bill Murray just disappeared from different movie sets because they partied so hard. And Werner Herzog literally kept trying to murder one of his actors who kept escaping his traps like they were like Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. Anyways, tickets are $7. A link to purchase them will be in the description of this episode. So this week, we're talking about some big sweeping changes to society that we think could make the world either a better place or at least a more interesting one. Some of these ideas are just kind of changing things you didn't notice were fucked up the way keys are organized on a standard keyboard. They have other organizations of the keys that are better. All words per minute records have been set using what's called a Dvorak keyboard instead of the QWERTY. QWERTY is because the top left most letters are Q-W-E-R-T-Y. Dvorak is named that after the guy who came up with that organization. But we're not going to cover improving keyboard distribution because the extra couple words per minute definitely aren't worth reteaching yourself to type. It's probably why this terrible organization has hung on for so long. That just seems like a lot of work. So instead, we're going to fix the ways that we release movies and TV shows and how we study human behavior and what we do with our garbage, just to name a few. And then some of them are just going to be big ideas that we just want to add to society. We come up with a couple ideas for holidays, one week-long holiday that I really dig from Cracked director Adam Ganser. Uh, another great place to look for these sorts of ideas is in other cultures. There are awesome national holidays that America could really stand to steal. There's a thing called Rockatopolis, where two neighboring cities fire giant bottle rockets across a valley that's in between them at each other. And the goal is to hit the other city's church bell with one of your rockets. If you do, you hear it ring out. It's dope and one of the coolest looking things you've ever seen. Robert Evans has been on this show talking about festivals in India where you drink insanely THC-rich tea 
and go around throwing colorful water at each other. It's like the entire country turns into the trippiest tent at Burning Man for a day. And then sometimes uh, there are just cool national values that I feel like we could stand to use. Getting out and enjoying nature is like an important cultural value in Norway. They call it, and I'm going to totally butcher this, Frulufsliv. Turns out I nailed it. And it's so important to them that they're allowed to, and this is kind of awesome, camp anywhere they want, including on another person's land for two nights before they have to ask for permission. So in America, we have like a handful of cordoned off national park areas and nature reserves where we're allowed to roam freely because nobody owns them. So like even nature is Epcot centerized or Disneylandified. Or another national value I don't think Americans don't realize they have is hospitality. We think we're hospitable to guests, but we spoke with a European backpacker who, tying into the Norway thing, instead of staying in hostels, just went around camping on different people's lawns in Eastern Europe, and he didn't get killed. And in fact, the people took pride in sharing their beer and whiskey with him because your hospitality is a big deal in the old world. And there are other kind of smaller ideas I think we should steal. Japan has an entire world of Kit Kat bars in all different flavors that we're missing out on. We have white chocolate and regular chocolate. They have like 13 flavors, green tea. Also, the rest of the world is kicking our ass when it comes to Oreos. We just started getting derivative flavors like birthday cake, which is good, and Swedish fish, which sucks. But other countries have cookie dough, berry-flavored Oreos, mint chocolate chip, peanut butter, soft-baked Oreos, ice cream Oreos, and most importantly of all, something called alfajor Oreos, which sounds like a men's rights meme, but is, in fact, three Oreos stacked on top of each other and covered in chocolate. They have that down in Brazil. We actually have an entire genre of articles on the site that are just words that we need to steal from other countries. Espirit de Escalier is how it's written in English. I don't speak French, but that is a French phrase meaning the spirit of the stairs, which I think we've talked about on the pod before is the feeling you get when you think of the perfect thing to say after you've left the conversation. Everyone knows that feeling. The French have a word for it that is kind of perfect, the spirit that seizes you as you're walking down the stairs after a conversation. You can tell a lot about a country by what they have words for. The Germans have a word for the act of giving childbirth while standing in the street because you are ashamed. The Russians have a word that roughly translates to man-cow, which connotes a type of prisoner and gulags that other prisoners would get to escape with them with the plan of eating them while crossing the frozen tundra. So they'd like fatten them up a little bit. We should have a word for that, too. These may seem like minor things, having a word in your language that means a thing. Why would that matter? Well, there's the fact that words are interrelated to thoughts in a way that isn't really like a one-way street. You don't just have a thought and then come up with a word to match that thought. Words actually we've covered before on the show, make thoughts possible. But I want to give you one last real-world example of a big idea that seemed crazy at the time, but had a profound effect. This is from an article titled Terrible Ideas That Solved Huge Problems that we ran on the site a while back, which would be another way to describe what we're trying to come up with this week. So it's no secret that the CIA went a little crazy during the 60s and 70s. They tried to 
kill people with exploding cigars. They tried to use LSD as a mind control drug. Come on, pig, don't you know it uncages your mind? But nothing really worked very well because those were fucking crazy ideas. Their LSD pranks actually gave rise to Ken Kesey and the hippie movement accidentally. And also one guy went crazy and jumped off a building. So anyways, when I tell you they tried to fight communism with the power of modern art, you probably assume another embarrassing failure. But this one actually succeeded. Most of the great modern artists of the 20th century were at least partially funded by the CIA, though the artists didn't realize it. This just came out a couple years ago. But yeah, when modern abstract expressionist art was first being invented, it wasn't very popular. President Harry Truman went to a modern art exhibit and his quote was, if that's art, then I'm a hottentot, which hottentot, I think, was a culturally inappropriate word for people from Africa. So two for two on standing the test of time there, Harry. Anyways, abstract art wasn't super popular. The CIA helped fund some of the most famous artists throughout the 60s and 70s. They funded Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, Robert Motherwell, Willem de Kooning. They're like four of the first names you think of when you think of expensive, abstract, expressionist paintings. And they were all secretly funded by the CIA because the CIA saw the Cold War as a war of ideas, which it kind of was. And while those... Artists' personal politics probably came closer to socialism than Washingtonian capitalism. Their art represented kind of freedom of thought, and they knew the Communist Party in Russia would never allow anything like modern art. In Russia, art was like realistic paintings of children giving flowers to Stalin, who's like seven feet tall and appears to be chiseled from granite and smuggling a small boa constrictor in his pants. And obviously, I can't point to some spreadsheet and say, modern art won this many hearts and minds. But one of the main guys at the CIA said he thought the abstract art funding was, quote, the most important division that the agency had at that time period, and that it played an enormous role in the Cold War. Uh, so anyways, that's a seemingly crazy big idea that worked surprisingly well. So now listen to some of our seemingly crazy big ideas and imagine them working well. Uh, I do hope you enjoy this conversation as much as me. This was one of the most fun ones we've had in a while. I'll be back at the end for some footnotes. Talk to you then. All right, we are joined in studio by... Alex Schmidt, a.k.a. Schmitty the Clam. Hey, hey. <laughs> and Adam Ganser, a.k.a. The Gans. Howdy. Nice. Well done. We did that both okay. Yeah, yeah we guys both yeah, have yeah. kind of a right. calling card. I like it. <laughs> uh, Adam has by far my favorite way anyone has ever accepted an invitation to be on this podcast. <laughs> he just wrote, I'm in. God help me, I'm in. <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah, That's right. super dramatic, man. It was like, sent from my iPhone. <laughs> on top of parapet. <laughs> the impetus for this uh, conversation are two ideas that you put on our pitch doc that are apparently things that whether we put a microphone in front of your face or not, you were going to be ranting about them. That's correct. Yeah, that's great. Alex has actually been listening to me doing this podcast in quotes <laughs> for about a year now. Right. 
big ideas is kind of the way we're focusing it. Bill Simmons used to have a episode of his podcast on ESPN called Half-Baked Ideas with one of his producers, Kevin Wilds, who yeah. just had these like big, crazy sort of weird ideas. They were um, usually inventions, though, as right. I recall. They were yeah. usually like gadgets. Right. <laughs> yeah, like one of them that I kind of liked, but he was like, everything from any time. You can have like shoes from any time or uh, cars from any time. Yes. And it's like, yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, that's pretty good. Why not? Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> Sounds great. Let's, let's do that. <laughs> Computers from any time. I'm just naming things that are in front of me. Gatorades from... Uh, yeah, I would love 60s Gatorade. That yeah. sounds real good right now. Yeah, I wonder what that would be like. Oh, man, I bet it's chalky. Food from uh, any time in history. We were just talking about how how much of the food that people ate as recently as like a hundred years ago was just like poison. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like they, yep. they had yeah. a sweetener that was lead. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was called lead salts. Right. And it, was, it tasted sweet. And so they put it in food. Uh, <laughs> they, they thought lead was just like great for you. Yeah. Uh, I'm always amazed any of us have ancestors. And that's just my period. first big idea. <laughs> yeah. Get rid of the ancestors. <laughs> Bring back the lead. Um, yeah. All right. So first up, Adam, you had a pretty cool idea about sort of the timetables that we do media on. Yeah, I, I noticed that this is especially true in the video game universe, but also still kind of in movies, that we have these weird seasons that are based on, I think, old ideas about how people are consuming movies and video games, right? So, like, movies have basically two or three seasons, right? They have, like, Oscar season, which means... Some movies get released in New York and Los Angeles in December, and then in January we watch all the Oscar movies, right? Yeah. Like through March. And then we have like kind of a dead zone in February to like April. And then from May through August we get all the summer blockbusters with May and June being the ones that matter. Mm-hmm. And then we have kind of a like a late season with like horror movies slash rom-coms and stuff like going into October, and that's it, right? Like that's basically how it works, right? Yeah. Like, if you know what the weather is, you kind of know what's going to be in theaters. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. And video (laughs) games are even more that way. Video games have basically one major release season, which is Black Friday through Christmas. Every major big investment AAA game comes out in that period of time, which means, like, literally every week there's a massive game that's coming out between, like, October to then. And only recently they started having kind of like, like a spring break release schedule, that's like in March, they'll come out with a couple of big games, right? So, but like in the summer, nothing. Because there's these old trade shows, right? That like people used to have to go to to find out about games. So they don't release games in like June and like May and stuff because there's going to be a big announcement. That's convention. really why? Because I they think so. Conventions I think so. Because I can't figure it out. Yeah, yeah. I can't right. figure out why else. Because like spring break and before Christmas makes sense because kids are going to like be home from school maybe and like people are going to be think, off work. Or parents uh, would buy stuff around Christmas time. Right. Well, that so, one, yeah. you know, that's why all the biggest games come out then. But like I can't figure out why with that release schedule they wouldn't be releasing summer stuff, right? Why would they do that? So this is the year though they've started to figure it out. This year, and I don't think they did it on purpose. I think this is the year they like, because of weird financial factors, they had to start doing different things. Mm. So like Nintendo was forced to release their console this year earlier than they wanted to is the rumor because of projections or whatever. So they released Uh a big game in March 
you know, which is like not around anything, and it's sold incredibly well. And actually, the system's sold incredibly well, and everyone's right, like, is it, "Why is this happening?" <laughs> is it the Switch and then yeah, Zelda? The Switch, yes, yeah. and Zelda, correct. So but like, people don't buy video games in March, right? How could this, this be happening? Be right. Like exactly, right. and like around that time, a bunch of other great games came out. Like the video game industry is literally like learning this now. They're like, right. "How can this be?" <laughs> <I don't, laughs> right, a little bit. And movies are the same thing. It's like based on basically school kids, right? Like when they consume stuff, but we clearly have an older audience for everything now. You know, like video games, people are going to play them when they're 50 now or older, and they're going to have more money than like kids are. The same thing with movies. Like, I don't think it's just an 18 to 25 year old game anymore. I don't know what the age is now, the upper limit, but it's got to be higher, right? right? It has to be. Their so, whole thing is like a four quadrant movie, right? Right. That old 80 year old women are going to like too. They all <laughs> like Marvel movies, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think <laughs> Thor was high on that demographic. Yeah. 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 But like, I, clearly, Netflix at least is demolishing that idea. By like not oh, even yeah. hyping or releasing on any schedule anyone can determine. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a new show and a new stand-up special weekly. Yeah. It seems and, like. And I would argue that the advantages of getting rid of the release schedule altogether is that you can actually effectively hype something more by not announcing it that much ahead. Or right. by not delivering the expected schedule. By like, oh, guess what? Thor's out next week. And that's something they learned you know? in the music industry yes. accidentally also because they wanted to avoid people leaking their albums so they started right. making albums in secret so nobody would know to like hack them and like try and get the albums and beyonce dropped her album as a surprise and was the biggest thing of the year and so it just seems like one of those things that everybody decided on and yes. like because being an executive in the entertainment industry is like, you don't really do anything, but like you, you're just grasping for straws kind of. It's, I feel like a very insecure industry. So you like grasp to these rules that were like, well, uh, Jaws was a summer hit. So all movies <laughs> from now on that have special <laughs> effects will come out in the summer. It's like, why? Right. What the fuck? It's, it's all very corporate, right? It's, it's corporate in the sense that like they all have to meet projections. So they stay too safe predictable, conventional wisdom when they can. That's why everything's a sequel and why this release schedule exists. Because yeah. it's like, I can't afford to be wrong. Right. I can only afford to be not so right. Like a right. little bit not so right. You know? But <laughs> for like so many decades, movies were being released right on top of each other mm -hmm. that were very similar. Like they would release like a huge action spectacle one weekend and then like another huge action right. spectacle the next weekend because like, there were only so many weekends in the summer. And instead of just being like, well, people will fucking see this in February if we sure. release it when like there's nothing else out. And like, it's not like people just don't go to the movies in February. But anyways, yeah, I, th I think people are coming around on it because now Fast and the Furious is like the yes. most successful franchise <laughs> and like that. I think caught a lot of people by surprise and probably they were released in like February or March. And now the really successful one was released in April. I think the eighth one. I think that uh, this year we might see some surprise game releases in June that might happen because mm. I think some games know they can't compete in the winter anymore with like call of duty or whatever, like the things that are going to be there for sure. Yeah. So like the better thing to do is like, Hey, you know how everybody's paying attention to video games. What if I just dropped a big game on you right now? And you like went out to buy something like use that traffic, you know, right. I, that might happen this year, or at least I've been hearing that. And that'd be cool. You know, like yeah. just getting rid of these dumb ideas. It's a very consumerist way of thinking. It's like, I just don't want to have to like wait for stuff or like, know it's going to happen. 
Like, I want to be surprised, you know? The customer's always right, Adam. That's, <laughs> that's the one <laughs> yes, thing that we exactly. all know. The idea of Oscar season is really frustrating because I think it kind of works in the sense that there is, like, a recency bias, but yes. that just proves how stupid the Oscars are. That, like, well, people just saw this, so right. they're going to be more likely to vote for it, and... You know, they won't vote for things that came out like at the beginning of the year. And it's also a real bummer for movies that think they're gonna be Oscar movies but aren't. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, well, we'll release in January. That way we'll get the Oscar buzz. And it's like, well, you just aren't that movie this year. Right. So nobody sees it. It's just right. done. Yeah. Yeah. We all know the game. It's like, you know, you know a few movies are gonna be a big deal. So you see them in December or in January, but then you wait till, you know, March to see the rest of them, right? Like that's what everybody does. Right. You know, or whatever, whatever February or whatever the month is, you know. And as a movie industry, it seems really risky to prime the audience to expect part of the year to suck. You want the audience to be open to movies maybe being good all of the time. Like, I think when Get Out came this year, I yeah. waited a week or two to see it just because I thought, this isn't when movies are good. Right. This isn't the time that's of year. Amazing. Eventually, I heard enough amazing reviews, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's probably good. But it was like, oh, no. Still this is waiting a, that one out. <laughs> this is a we'll time see. of year where they just don't do that. But they did. It was great. And what, it, that was like April, right? Or like what? Or I think it was March. March. Yeah, March. Yeah, that's... Uh, January, December. <laughs> yeah, <we're> all, <laughs> it was all the months. Uh, nobody ever released a horror movie before like September, right? Like that never oh, happened. sorry. February 24th was going out. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's Because really... that's when movies aren't very good. Right. So but I it was, was great. right. Right? <laughs> yeah, you were right. Yeah, okay, but cool. also, wasn't John Wick... In that same zone. Yeah, and so. that also was like a pretty, like, yeah, at pretty least good. commercially successful movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's changing, which is good, I think. This is yet another problem that would be solved by the big idea we've covered a lot on the site, that the Oscars should be honoring movies from five years ago or a set number of years ago so that there would be no recency bias. You would let the really great movies rise to the top. There would probably be less of a bias against comedies and horror movies because Comedies and horror movies are sometimes just like the movie that lasts, yeah. that people find to be the most rewatchable. You would essentially cut out an entire genre of movies, which are like the Oscar movies. Yes. Because you wouldn't even have an Oscar season. There would You would just have people putting out the best movie they could year round and just like worrying about like when people would see it, I guess. Do you worry that we wouldn't make dramas anymore? Yeah. That like if they had to make money? If dramas have to make money, like, do you worry about that? I worry a little. Yeah. I mean, I think Hollywood wants dramas to exist more than anything. Like, they'll never give up on that. <laughs> Which I, <laughs> right. I, you know, yeah, God yeah. bless them. Like, I like dramas, you know, but like, yeah. I, so I think they would <laughs> have to pry it from their cold, dead hands. But like, well, it's, I, I think we would see a few less dramas if we didn't have Oscar season. But also, if we didn't have Oscar season, that would spread out a lot of kind of samey Oscar movies. And True. I would see more of them. Like, I would see more of these movies about British history if they were spread out over the year. You know, like, I don't need to see four movies about a British scientist in the same that's week. That's fair. You know, yeah. like, that's not something I'm on board with. <laughs> that's fair. But they had different disabilities, Alex. Um, One of them didn't have Benedict Cumberbatch. Right. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like, you wouldn't need to stop re-releasing movies that like won Oscars, you know, yes. you could like re-release the movies for consideration, like five years on, it would just be the movies that get re-released for the Oscar consideration. There wouldn't be all these other movies that were trying to get Oscar consideration, but worked. yeah, it also, it'd just be more accurate. We don't put people in the middle of their careers into the hall of fame. Nobody's like, right. like we right. wait until five years and then we have a voting process and people can debate about it. But the reason for that is like, 
Well, we know what they are. We know right. what they did, and we know the impact they had. That's no longer debatable. Yeah. I mean, the Academy Awards is just a museum. Like, that's all right. it is. You yeah. know, it's like... It's a Hall of Fame. Yeah. This is the best one. So, like... A wildly inaccurate Hall of Fame. <laughs> exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. the problem. Yeah, that's the problem with it. Yeah, I like that. I wonder if it could be expanded. Well, I guess there's not really any other seasons. Music doesn't really have a season, right? I don't know if the Grammys... Like, I don't know if there's, like, a strategic time to release an album for a Grammy. I don't yeah. think it is, right? Sweeps, I feel like, uh, yeah. in TV is a fairly arbitrary thing. I feel like I read the history of Sweeps at one point, and it was just like, that's when advertisers would be traveling through Oklahoma, yeah. where the TV antennas were. <laughs> like, wow. <something> like, I, <laughs> don't know. Crazy. I don't know. Yeah, exactly Sweeps, that's a weird artifact. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just like, these are the finals. <laughs> like, this yeah. is final exams for all TV shows <laughs> that are on, on the air. Yeah. What? It feels very electoral college, but right. like instead yeah. of all the founders coming up with it, it was like one guy in the fifties with like a tie on. You right. know, like, oh well, it should be this. Okay, right. fair enough. That yeah. was all Some of television. Now we don't came have to think about it. to a meeting and was yeah. like, uh, I don't know, maybe this. <laughs> People were like, sure, that, 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 it's got to be smart. I've heard they might be doing away with that entire concept. Because there's an article I read that, like, TV ads are no longer worth the amount of money that they're being asked to pay. So, like, there's a pretty good chance the whole TV schedule might get upended in like, right. the next couple of years. Which yeah. I think would also be cool. You know, because I'm tired yeah. of waiting. I, I don't like the summer for sitcoms. It's like, there should be sitcoms all the time. Right. And it shouldn't be cable-based, you know? Like, right. Right. There's so many ways around the ads, or we skip them, or we... Right. Or people are pirating it. Right. Or... People are watching HBO and there aren't ads. But this is just all part of your plan to get the Big Bang Theory on your <laughs> That's all I yeah. want, is all just for it to Adam be a little more convenient. talking about that. Um, <laughs> Season 12, confirmed. Is that right? Uh, yes. All right. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll cross off my uh, do a Season 12 of the Big Bang Theory, which was, which was one of my big ideas. <laughs> uh, so Germany does this thing where they uh, weigh garbage. And like weigh the garbage that comes out of each household. And, and it's done with an eye towards getting people to create less waste. Robert Evans wrote an article about how he traveled to India and there's just garbage everywhere because they don't have very good garbage people service. Like sanitation. Yeah, sanitation. sanitation. Yeah. Boom. Uh, they don't have good sanitation processes. But when he went there, he was like, God, there's so much garbage here. Like, how do they create so much garbage? And then he looked it up and India creates less garbage than anyone else. It's just that because it's everywhere, you see it more. So people are less likely to create it because they're drowning in it. Oh, wow. And, and his oh. idea was like... Huh. Get rid of garbage men. <laughs> and like it's a little our, cities, our cities will smell like shit and we'll stop creating garbage, which I think is a terrible idea. <laughs> Robert's a crazy person. Um, it reminded me of this Arizona sociologist who I've talked about before on the site who basically studies live landfills as like his archaeological digs. He studies like what people throw away. And by studying like 
what people throw away and like getting an average for like, okay, this town has this many people. So this garbage is coming from this many people. And then like sorting the garbage, he was able to tell things like we drink way more than we self-report. All the statistics that you hear about everything basically that has to do with behavioral <laughs> things. Yeah, we're lying. Yeah. Is self-reported data. It's, uh. it's all survey based essentially. It might not be that we're like, you know, snickering and lying. It might just be that we choose to believe that we only had half of that fifth of Jack last night instead of one and a half. So basically my idea would be that we have a process for ingesting all of the garbage that is created by a given community. And we study that and like learn about the community essentially so that when you think about it, like 200 years in the future, the way they're going to be studying us is by digging into our landfills. Yeah, right. So why not just skip the middleman of history and start like actually learning about ourselves by not only just weighing our garbage, but also sorting it and digging into it and getting information about what the habits are and how people are actually behaving. And then, like, suddenly the career of Garbage Man is not the punchline in elementary school. Right. It's like, no, I, that's what I want to do. You know, like, that's, right. like, they have to be scientists and stuff. That'd be interesting. Are there, like, projected big benefits to this, other than, like, knowing stuff? Like, what are things we think could come about from that study? Does anybody have... I think health information right. is a huge one. I think just having an evidence-based way of learning about our culture, we would be surprised at the things we would find out. There would just be things that we couldn't ignore because right. they're there. They're right. being like garbage is being created. There are going to be things that future historians know about us that we don't know about ourselves because they're going to do this. That we could do now. Right. right. You know, we know that certain past civilizations had dildos and they probably right. that probably wasn't widely like <laughs> advertised uh, you know there, there were all sorts of sex toys in the 1800s in america and we know that because we've found the sex toys i'm surprised that there are certain companies that are interested in doing this because they might learn that they could actually sell less product for more money you know yeah. uh, or they might learn that like people like their product more than they think we think they do I'm sure Doritos, for instance, would learn like, oh, yeah, you guys love us. You fucking love us. Yeah, they can look at purchase uh, statistics. But yeah, like just knowing how much people are consuming, what they're consuming, all the shit that they're throwing away, I think would be surprised. And I I just know that we would be because this guy did this in like one very small community. And yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. The reason I found him in the first place was he was describing the studies he does. And he was saying that when you cut down into a landfill, it looks like a layer cake. Mm-hmm. And the reason it looks like a layer cake is because of when the phone books come out, everybody oh. throws them away immediately. <laughs> and right. so you just have these entire layers of phone books wow. and then like garbage, 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 layer of phone books, garbage, garbage. So like you would learn like immediately like, oh, this is complete waste. Like yeah. nobody yeah. is fucking using phone books. Like yeah. we can, we can stop pretending, but you have this entire segment of local economies that is wasting money, like advertising in phone books and like nobody's looking at them. Right. And this would be like, you know, just one way of 
Although phone books can now make the argument like this is how we're preserving an accurate right. record of humanity. Well, no, that's like, what they he can said. Make that he argument. said they're yeah. great preser- yeah. preservers because it's like having just like an airtight seal of phone books over top of. <laughs> it's true because like when I think of a landfill, I literally think like, oh, they just burn stuff or there's meth deals done there. Right. Like that's yeah. all I think they do there. Yeah. So like they could probably get more out of it. You know, like <laughs> what if it was like a living museum? Yeah, kind of, like, that'd be awesome. That'd, yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah, it's a Hall of Fame, but for everybody. (laughs) For what I ate. Hall of Fame to (laughs) a people's history of day-to-day life. Consumer Hall of Fame. Yeah. (laughs) As far as making life more optimal, we could also try something where everybody has a four-day work week. It wouldn't mean less work. It would specifically be work four days and work, you know, 10 hours a day to get to 40 hours. But it's been done in the state of Utah with state employees. It's been tried with various companies like Basecamp. And they find that some people don't like it, but a lot of people find that it's a much more optimal way to live. You can pack all of your work into fewer days, so then you work harder those days. You have a weekday where you can do all your, like, banking, DMV stuff, voting, you know. And then the state of Utah initially tried it because they thought it would save them on energy. And it didn't hit the goal they wanted, but it did save about 13% of the energy they were spending on, like, heating and cooling office buildings. People are commuting less, so there's less people on the roads. It seems like a pretty easy way to make life work better for everyone. And we could just go ahead and do it. My wife's practice has this option available to doctors. And I think one of the reasons is so that there was this rule, some new medical <clears throat> student killed somebody because they had been on for 36 hours in a row. And so they have these insane long shifts that they like basically use to haze medical students, essentially. <laughs> so they made a rule that medical students could only have at most a 12-hour shift. And they found that fatal accidents involving medical students actually went up. And the reason was because of the trade-off. A lot of accidents happen when you are leaving and having to explain like what's going on with this patient to the person uh, who's coming after you. So I think that that's got to be true of other like you know, once you're done for the day, having a break in your work, or at least the way my mind works, like I I do feel like, you know, 12 straight hours of work or 10 straight hours of work is going to be better than five, eight Eight, hours. Right, right. Yeah, you only need to get ramped up to working mode right? less often. And then also there's huge benefits to having a three-day weekend or having just more time off. Like they were finding at some of these companies that people took less time off for sick days or vacation days because they had such long weekends so they didn't need it and so they ended up getting more hours out of their team of employees just because they were out less and forgive me i read this article but i don't remember this stat does it say how much more productive that time is have they figured that out like because i see a lot of the benefits are like sort of tertiary where it's like people take less time off and like there's a little less energy usage and people are happier with a three-day week. But like, are they more productive for that extended period of time? It's hard to measure that. It's hard to measure that exactly, Mm. yeah. They did find that at companies where it's an option, people tended to take it if they could. And then also it set up a system where if the business needed to be open five days a week, they would kind of stagger people's day off to various positions. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little suspicious of bosses at these companies just saying, my idea was more productive because, like, yeah, you want to be right. you know. Right, right, sure. From anecdotal evidence of these places talking to people, 
the state of Utah found about 80% of their workers who did it liked it. There were a few people who didn't. This NPR story interviews somebody who said that a 10-hour workday is just exhausting. Like that energy crash you can have in the afternoon, you have more work coming after that, and so it's hard for them. Huh. But it, they, in surveying state employees, found about 80% of them were into it. Well, and, I have something yeah. for your fucking energy crash, bro. Japan... And I like, thought you were going to throw to a sponsor. Well, he found three of them real quick. No, so, like, this is a hardcore mid roll right here. Here we go. <laughs> I, knew that, I knew that Spain took siestas because I lived there for a little bit. Yeah. But apparently, like most countries take siestas in the afternoon. Like most countries that like after lunch crash that everybody in America is like, God, why can't I get over this? Yeah. This five-hour energy isn't working well enough. Like, I, <laughs> I need to try meth. Other countries deal with that by just taking a nap. Like, you're allowed yeah. to take a nap at work in Japan. In Spain, they actually go home to take lunch and then take, like, a couple-hour nap and then go back and work later into the night. In France, I think they only work, like, one month out of the year in France. But <laughs> when, <laughs> a bunch and, of communists. And that implementing that siesta thing, all you have to do is decide to do it. Like, I have a friend right. who was working at a startup in Chicago which had like this cool kooky office where there was an old boxcar in the middle of it that was converted into a nap room so you could sleep. But like, he's basically the person in America who had that available. Right. And we would need to roll it out, but that's all you need to do. You just do it. Well, yeah. that, it's true. And also like, I spent a month in China where they also have a siesta, which I found interesting. Oh. You know what happens during that siesta? You have a better social life. Because like, let's say you don't nap for that amount of time. Mm. Like you just hang out with yeah. your friends or whatever. Like. You know, that's not going to be a short thing. And then you're not tired at the end of the day. So you like decide, like, am I going to go out or, you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff that like kind of cramps your social life when you get a little older. That wouldn't happen with a siesta. You would have your work friends are already there or go actually do something with the friends you really have. Like whatever, you know, that'd be cool. Yeah. I would love that. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Yeah. And the four 10-hour workdays, like having the option to go five and eight or four and 10 is really useful for women who become mothers while they're yeah. working. Yeah. And like just having that flexibility to do either or is, I know, really beneficial, at least in our case. And I'm sure it must be to other women. Yeah, the, the story about Utah interviews a mother who she's like, yeah, Friday mornings I go interview at my kid's school. I get to spend time with my child. Like It, it has completely changed how much I get to be a parent. Like They love it. It's also in Utah, yeah. they interview parents to make sure that they're good enough. No. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, like, I'm having a hard time figuring out who doesn't want this. You know what I mean? Like, I know, yeah. I, I see that there are people who don't want it. I'm just wondering, like, how many of them self-identify as, like, crotchety or whatever. Because it's just <laughs> like, what? Like, I could imagine the story talks about a lot of parents needing to work out more childcare time on the days they are right. working. That's and fair. it okay. also admits that if somebody does call in sick or take a vacation on one of those work days, it's that much more time lost, you know? Those are pretty much the drawbacks that I can think of. That's about it. Yeah, I think you have to have a pretty large workforce to pull it off. You can't like have two employees that are doing five and eight right. and like one that's doing four and ten because then it could get sort of annoying. And there's some industries obviously it'll never that'll never work out, like retail and stuff like that. But Right. Like, well, yeah, retail <clears throat> has its own set of problems. Right. But a state job for sure. They absolutely can do in fact I know there are state jobs that do do it. Not just in Utah. Like I know the port of Long Beach does it and other places like that. 
I think everybody who does professional work, there will be weeks where you kind of have to do that anyway, because it's like, no, I just have to go to the DMV during DMV hours right. this week, and it'll be during work. Sorry. Or like, I can only get into the dentist during banking hours on a right. weekday, so I'm going to miss some work time, you know? And so if you do a four-day work week, then you can fix that problem. It's impossible to get to the DMV without, like, missing a bunch of work as it is. I mean, almost yeah. all, like, serious services require you to miss work yeah. for one reason or the other. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, it's mostly entertainment, right. like, commodity <laughs> selling stuff that you right. don't have to skip work for. Right, right. You know? So if everybody has one built-in weekday off, then you do it then. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You could even vote then. How about that? Yeah. Yeah, that that was something that we were talking about, like extending the amount of time you can vote so it's not just one day. I actually found... So there are all these like seemingly common sense solutions that like don't work. And they're saying that places that have done that have extended the amount of time that you can vote. It actually cuts down on the amount that people vote because it's like there's less pressure on mm. election day and so it's not like oh we're all going to vote it's election day it's not this like communal experience interesting oh, yeah so that's counterintuitive i know shit yeah because <laughs> i i mean i know that for me the thing that's frustrating about voting is when there's too many events to vote on which happens in los angeles a lot i would say there's been like four elections yeah. this year We've had multiple local elections since November. Right, which is yeah. like, why? Like, get it all done at once. You know, it's weird. Yeah. Or when it's like, I got to skip work or I got to, like, something that's, like, really inconvenient and feels like that would be nice to kill that, but I guess not. I like voting by mail quite a bit. I do, Because you too. can do it early, but I can easily see how that gets lost in the shuffle of things to do. And then the other common sense one that you actually hear a lot about in the media <laughs> is the idea that Election Day should be a national holiday but Slate actually wrote an article about that that pointed out that that would actually suck for a lot of low-income people who are in the types of jobs like retail that you don't get off on days off mm. for national holidays. And it benefits the people who show up at Starbucks and like, are like, hey, man, yeah. check out my voting sticker. Because there's no holiday where truly everyone's off of work. Right. right. And especially people who are doing like service industry things that those of us who have off are still hitting up. Next big idea. Man, why does Too that... many people are off on Christmas. <laughs> you know, unproductive Christmases. <laughs> Just Chinese restaurants? That's bullshit. I want chilies. Yeah. Hey guys, so this episode we've been talking about some pillars of modern life that could be fixed with one simple change, and the way we get jobs and hire people is another great example of a broken institution that we've never thought to fix. Right now there's sort of an employment or a bros where job givers don't know where to post their jobs to find the right candidates because there are so many, and job seekers don't know where all the jobs are, and we just go in a circle. I said we've never thought to fix it, but thankfully ZipRecruiter did. ZipRecruiter does all the hard work for you. On ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with just a single click. Then their powerful technology matches the right people to your job, which is what makes ZipRecruiter different. They don't depend on candidates finding you. Their technology finds them for you. 
Actually, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. So if you're looking for qualified people or you are a qualified person, head over to the ZipRecruiter to post your job or apply for your next one. Right now, my listeners can post their jobs to ZipRecruiter for free. Yes, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. That is ZIPRecruiter.com slash cracked. We could talk about taxes. That's fun, right? Yeah, that's so fun. Taxes. Uh, so I think, and this is not my idea. Somebody else came up with it. But we should eliminate the step of income taxes where you report your own income to the government, or at least the the big ticket stuff where there are forms for it, like W-2s, because they already know you made that money. They already have that information. Right. And so then what we do every year with their income taxes is like basically prove to the government that we can assemble the information they already have <laughs> and then tell them about it. It sounds insane. And we all did it every year. Yeah. Right. We all did this. Yeah. Until like, now. Right. Yeah. There was a professor here in California who came up with a system called Ready Return. And by came up with it, I mean he just saw that other countries do this and we right. could do it too. Like uh, almost every other country? Yeah, pretty, pretty much. Which is, in most other countries, the way taxes work is the government sends you a form with the information they already know. Like it's a partly filled out tax return already, and then you just add in the other information you need to add, especially if you made money on like tips or cash or something, and then just amend anything that's incorrect and send it back. And that's how you do your taxes. And they tested it out with 11,000 people in California, and 99% of them said it was great and we should do this all the time. And then he tried to make it a state law in California that it works that way. And a company called Intuit, which is the company that makes TurboTax, spent lots of money lobbying against it, and it lost by one vote. And so it's not a law here. And if it had been a law here, it probably would have been an example that worked elsewhere in the U.S. And uh, instead, we're all going to just do that dumb quiz with the government next year and like prove that we have our forms in order. TurboTax like, and H&R Block will like never let this happen, yeah. even though it would make everyone's life so much easier. Yeah, and it's a form of tax reform that doesn't change the amount of taxes anyone pays. Because like a lot of times when people are campaigning or promoting like, we need tax reform, so mumble, 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 billionaires shouldn't pay taxes. Or like right. some crazy, yeah, yeah. you know, like... <laughs> That's what tax reform <laughs> some, like, technically some always means. means yeah. Some yeah. radical change to the amount of money that goes to the government. This doesn't change that at all. It's just a system to make things work more sensibly and be less painful for us. Tax return usually means... I think poor people have it too easy. <laughs> right, right, right. It's nothing with what anybody pays. And admittedly, the one group of people it would hurt is people who work in large-scale tax preparation. And I want them to have jobs, but I think this is still but something like They're going to be sense. replaced by computers. So yeah, quickly. I mean, come on, man. Not enough to revive the coal industry, so to speak. You know, you know what I mean? Like, Right, right. Come on, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, they can't feel good about the fact that their purpose in this world is just like unfucking like a purposefully fucked up tangled mess of bureaucracy <laughs> right right yeah, yeah when they tried this ready return thing with people in california they also sought out comments from people about how they felt it worked and how it did and one of the comments they got back was finally government's doing something to make my life better for a change wow <laughs> yeah man great <laughs> yeah. that sounds really nice yeah. you know and like nobody would not pay their taxes if the government like sent you a bill and was like, "Hey, we know about this, right?" So yeah, like, 
don't fucking try well, anything. Especially if it was easier. Right. right. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. oh, I just get over with, you know? Right. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know stats, but I assume there is a percentage of people who don't pay their taxes annually just because it's a pain. You know, like, they just don't get around to it. And, like, this would presumably reduce that. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what the process of doing it is, but, like... I hate how much like comparing a document to stuff you have to do. Yeah. Like, can you imagine if it was just checking like three boxes and like that's it? Like, and all those documents you're comparing, the government has those right. already. Right. I can't right. emphasize that enough. Let's see if he gets this right. <laughs> they already know. Right. You're not providing them with information in a way that helps. They want to like quiz you in some yeah. weird like gotcha way. <laughs> Is he going to say he hasn't earned income credit? He didn't. Right. Right, Smart right. man. <laughs> so if anyone ever tells you that capitalism is like the most efficient form of social organization, just keep in mind that like in this case, it actually fucks things up. It makes things less efficient by having H&R Block or TurboTax like lobby to yeah. keep things complicated. I just hate that they have a say. I, you know what I mean? Like that really, I mean, that's a whole other issue, but like I hate that TurboTax destroyed this because it's like oh fuck you like you know what I mean? like, come on man you're irrelevant because <laughs> it's also this professor uh his name is joseph bankman on one side it was TurboTax opposing this and spending lobbying dollars and on the other side it was like this guy like he, <laughs> joseph spent, bankman. he says he's he says he was like i guess if they have lobbyists i will hire a lobbyist because I, right. I guess that's how it would work unless i do it myself and so he paid a lobbyist 35 grand of his own money to just work on this. And that was the side for this, was just this dude spending a lot of his annual salary and time trying to make it happen. Meanwhile, H&R Block has like commercials with Anthony Davis in them. Right, of course. Yeah, it's yeah. like <laughs> they have Anthony Davis show up to court. They're like, watch yeah. me do sick dunks, jury. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't a jury trial. All right, I have another one that I just think is going to happen. Basically, I think that we're going to have additional senses by the time I die, which physical senses? is going to be in a few days. Yeah, actual physical senses. So there are these technologies that are kind of rapidly advancing that are basically replacement senses for people who are blind or hearing impaired. One of the most promising ones is a small plastic lollipop that blind people can put on their tongue, and it's basically got a handful of electrified pixels that will do a printout on their tongue, which the tongue has as many nerves as the fingertips. They're the two most sensitive parts of the, of the human body. And basically people who can't see will eventually be able to see based on this like readout that is being like communicated through this little stamp sized pixel lollipop thing. And for a long time in the field of neurology, there was this thought that adults couldn't relearn things. Uh, there was this study where um, some really kind scientists uh, sutured a baby kitten's eye closed, left eye, and then <laughs> wait, why? What? And then unsutured it after nine months of the kitten going around with only one eye open. And the kitten never regained sight in that eye because all of the neurons on the visual cortex had basically been devoted to the eye that could see in okay. the first nine months of life. So that led people to be like, well, so we could never learn new senses or do these sorts of sensory replacements once we're adults. But it turns out that's incorrect. 
Those people sewed that kitten's eye closed for nothing. So they're having a lot of success. Like there's a New Yorker article this week or last week, by the way, that's the new name of this podcast. There's uh, this New Yorker article, (laughs) uh, but the journalist who's writing the piece actually goes in and tries out the thing while blindfolded. And by the end of like a two hour session, she can differentiate between different things on the table and just hearing her describe it, it feels like she's like gaining a new sense. So anyways, there's this guy, David Eagleman, I always talk about. He's a neuroscientist who we actually interviewed a guy who was like his grad student for a long time and is opening a a new lab where they're talking about adding senses instead of just replacing them. And their idea is that if you can replace senses, you can like add different things. They have like a coat that allows deaf people to hear things based on like the printout on the different impulses that are electrified on the person's back. That sounds more painful than it I'm sure it is. At least it's not a kitten. Right. <laughs> Still uh, not over yeah, that. They have, yeah. to, they have to sew their eyes shut, too, for this. Oh, we no. didn't mention that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so the idea is that you would be able to have a constant sense of, like, your location GPS-wise based on something that's, like, on your back or, like, on your tongue or something like that. Because the idea is that, like, you don't see with, your eyes you see with your brain. And so you can like input all these new senses of things. Like he he talked about having like a constant readout of what the stock market is doing, just like constantly like feeding into your brain essentially. And the guy who invented the brain port, which is the tongue thing, thought that the first example of what we're talking about here is writing because it is a visual translation of what up to that point had been like an auditory experience, the oral tradition. And we kind of stopped at that. We were just like, wow, that's great. But like with technology and with people kind of people testing more and more of these possible solutions, I feel like we could see a lot of things that are as huge as humanity learning to read. Just, you know, nobody has put their mind to it. This guy, David Eagleman, compares the current state of neuroscientific knowledge to the field of genetics, like before we discovered the structure of DNA. He's like, we just haven't really like even put the thought in, but like we're figuring out crazy shit. If I had to make a crude summary of what you just told me, it sounds like you're saying there's a man who can make me into my smartphone. Yes. Like who can, like in addition to what I can already do, (laughs) make me into my smartphone. Yeah. That's crazy, and I am all in on that. That I sounds kind, great. I kind of almost do this already with like podcasts, like because I've added a new input of information that's just like constantly yeah. coming into my brain. Or like the New Yorker article I'm talking about, I had read to me this morning while I was running. So you're just like adding a new stream of data that's coming into your brain in a sense that you weren't previously using or you at least weren't using for that. The thing that I found the most interesting is the sense of direction. Yeah. Like having a like an actual globally attached sense of direction. Yeah. You cannot underestimate how important that could be. Yeah. Like aside from never being lost again, like we know where people are. That'd be amazing. You just have an yeah. attachment where like you know where your kids are in an right. amusement park at all times. Like when right. you go there, one of the ideas that we actually interviewed a guy for this special GE 
series of podcasts last year, but we were talking about the idea that like you can already play ping pong with your mind. Like there's a way to like put a helmet on and people can like play like tennis on a computer screen with their mind. So we already know how to like just use our mental impulses to control like something on a computer screen. Like imagine having a input into your mind or just like a helmet on your head that controls a drone and so you just constantly have a drone above you as like a fifth appendage and if there's a camera on it you could also have it inputting like a bird's eye view of like everything around you at all times yeah i would be a video game character yeah exactly yeah you'd be a call of duty character you could just Uh, walk around as a video game character (laughs) with like a heads up display yeah skyrim me yeah yeah really cool yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna get into what Skyrim Schmitty would be. Uh, very exciting prospect. A dragon, obviously. <laughs> Thank you. The only downside I can see so far to this is like, what do I have to wear to get this? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, that's the only thing is like, can we get this to not be yeah. an outrageous <clears throat> spacesuit to do all this shit? Because <laughs> right? you know? I remember when Google Glass came out and right. I kind of went away. Right. My thinking on that is like. That particular iteration was not popular, but whenever they figure out the popular version of wearing right. that, it's yeah. going to be when they figure out how to everything. make it lenses and glasses you already wear. Right, yeah. exactly. That's what it needs. That's to what be. they need. Yeah. yeah, you know, like it turns out Google doesn't make cool looking glasses. Right. Who knew? It's like yeah, okay, sure. Only a few people do make cool looking yes. glasses. Yeah, but yeah, they were just like, well, nobody likes this. Yeah. So it's like, no, you made <laughs> stupid looking glasses, idiots. We we made a we made a video like years and years ago. I think it was a does not compute about a guy who had antennas that could help him see weird colors. Yes, I think it was a does not compute. Yeah. So that guy is like the person who is giving this idea a bad name right now. Yes. Because it's like he's, <laughs> he's just like he's like I do it because my life is like a continuous work of art and like the thing that he has input into his brain is he can see ultraviolet light but it's not like the cool way to use that would be that like you can have infrared vision and like see people through a wall but like instead he just has like when there's ultraviolet light around like he hears like loud harp music or right. something and it's just like that's not useful you just like, wanted to have bug antennas right. man admit yeah. it like just you know <laughs> you don't care what they do right i'm not recommending this man as a model for anything yeah. but like i i like the idea of like admitting that we all kind of want to be cyborgs a little bit like just a right. touch yeah and like we want all those video game things to be in our real life like we do want that we all want a hud yeah we all wanna, <laughs> yeah kinda, yeah yeah, yeah. For sure. You know? Yeah. Anyways, I think that's coming in our lifetime. I think so, too. Um, So I wanted to jump on something you were saying earlier about voting in the work week stuff, right? Oh, yeah. If it's a a four-day work week, that extra day could be election day. Correct. Yes. So I've always thought that it's strange that we don't have a week where – like, I'm a big consolidator of time. You know that. Like, I just want everything yeah. to be, like, in little blocks. So, like, to me, why isn't there a, a national week where everything that we have to do with government can happen? Like, a civics week, yeah. right? So, like, I would include taxes, all your DMV stuff, right? Like, your registration, all that stuff, license stuff, all your voting things. This is the week where you are given a week off to accomplish all of these tasks, right? Yeah. And it should be around the 4th of July, because, like, you could actually have a sense of patriotism while you're doing all these things that are yeah. important national events, right? It'd be easy to remember, too. It's right, and you actually have the time to do research. Because I think most people, if they didn't have to spend their free time, would look into what prop whatever is. 
like whatever Prop D is, they'd read a pamphlet on it. Why not? And if you had a week off, you would probably do that, I would think. Now I'm ready to hear that statistically that's not true. <laughs> well, no, I like the idea that there is like a holiday spirit yeah. to it. Yeah, I, I think that would totally help because I think their theory on why it didn't work extending it beyond a week is that nobody thought of voting day as an event. So like they weren't moved to go vote. But if like everything that happens in this week is part of this like holiday thing, like a ritualized thing where everybody knows that on the 4th of July, everyone has voted and you get to talk about who you voted for. And like, that was just part of the deal. Like, I, I think that would definitely work. One thing we could steal from France is they do... Uh, during the week, or I think maybe it's like a couple of days prior to their election, they do a complete media blackout so that yeah. nobody can like come out with like some 25th hour like bullshit news story. So like all the Russia hacking that they tried to do to get Le Pen to win didn't work in their case because they just have this media blackout. So nobody gets to like hear the breaking news about like whatever nonsense bullshit that hackers were trying to put out there. I just like that France kind of believes there's an amount of information you need to decide this and you already have it. Like you don't yeah. need the, the week before to decide it. Like you, you know, I, right. I think that's true. Yeah. I think there's an amount of information I need to vote. And yeah. I get way more than that always. Yeah. You know, I think we yeah. had it in this past election by like June. Oh, easily. Yeah. June uh, of 2015. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. yeah. 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 We were fine. <laughs> yeah. For sure. And, and I also think, I mean, because like I'm, you know, a fairly left person at this point. It's kind of a bummer that patriotism is always associated with things that I don't like. You know right. what I mean? Like I like I kind of want to take that back. Like the part of me that's an American that does American things is these jobs. These are the things that I do that are direct participation. Yeah. I would like to celebrate that. That'd Apparently, cool. Adam doesn't like beer and fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking that was up next. Uh, that was my next <laughs> idea: was eliminate beer and fireworks. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I think that would be cool if that was part of the the week. Was that it was a media blackout? Like that could be its own holiday. Oh just like. God. The news shuts down for a week and everybody oh, yeah. just like fucking chills the fuck out Ugh. for a week and like stops having to worry about like what the president is up to or, you know, the president can go do whatever. He can he can actually the... go play golf and us right. not feel frustrated yeah, yeah, about yeah, it. Exactly. You know, like... And if it's in July, like the weather's good, you know, I'll go right. outside. You know? Yeah. This idea of inventing a holiday, France in 1982. I sound like the biggest left-wing weenie. I'm like, just keep pointing to France. Like, France has this idea that... But just to prove that you can invent a holiday, they invented, like, the Day of Music in 1982. And it's, like, a day you get off that their entire country, like, turns into a giant music festival. They just have huge, like, concerts everywhere. And it's like... Yeah, that would be cool. cool. Like, yeah. so somebody in 1982 in France was like, this would be cool. Let's like do yeah. that. And they were able to pull it off. So let's fucking do Civics Week or America Week or yeah, we, we need to work on the branding of Civics Week. That's uh, America. Yeah, yeah, America. Yeah. I feel like private enterprise has accomplished that kind of thing once in a while in America already. Like Super Bowl Sunday is that for football. Yeah. It's a day where everyone in the country is either watching the Super Bowl or has made a conscious decision not to and be left out. Right. Yeah. Valentine's Day uh, is another one that I would say has been branded like that. Yeah. Uh, So why don't we have the government do it for the art of music? Great. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. 
It sure does sound like an, an 80s French thing to do, though, does it? It's just like, <laughs> oh, it's like, yeah, yeah. It's just like we uh, have music the week. Uh, civics yeah. week? Uh, how do you say? <laughs> That's fair. So the other idea that I have, I actually have ranted at Alex about this, I think, at least three times, is I want the news to not be for profit anymore. Mm-hmm. And I say that because I think all of us are, and for one reason or the other, consuming a lot of news these days. And to me, the big problem is that News has to make money. Uh, It has to sell ads. It has to cater to a particular demographic because that's how television works, right? That's how they keep an audience. I would love the idea, and I don't know if it's logistically possible, of every single channel having a mandated hour. Maybe it's nightly or maybe it's once a week that they are not allowed to advertise and they must run a news program. There'd be like a 10-minute blackout before and after, so they couldn't run ads or, or try to milk it at all. And they couldn't run any ads during this news broadcast. And there would be no oversight other than like whatever like censure oversight exists now about like content, if yeah. that. Uh, I think there's some national security stuff right now. And uh, that's about it. Yeah, probably yeah. that. So that stuff. But otherwise, they run whatever version of news they want to run. That's it. For yeah. public good. And, all, and every channel can decide what they want that to be. So I heard somewhere fairly recently, I think it was on a podcast, that that's how the news used to be. Yes. Fairly recently. It was basically each of the networks were for profit in everything except news was where they spent their like surplus essentially. Right. And it was just understood that like, yeah, we do news as a public service to everybody, but like they weren't trying to win the ratings game. They were trying to do the best job with the news. Right. And then it slowly turned into it being a ratings game and it's been not good. Every piece of news I consume now feels like not just news, but also an attempt to get me to keep tuning in. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. like the Rachel Maddow thing where she's oh, like, that was the worst come one. back yeah. and we will show you right. <laughs> the Trump tax return. And it's like, yeah, that's insane. Oh, or man. or just like, just the way that headlines are worded. And I try to read some variety of news to not feel like I'm just looking at one thing. But like, I would be really interested to find out what like HBO would do with news. Yeah, if they had cool. to provide it. They can do a good job with it, yeah. you know? Because, like, the only thing to gain out of that is cred. You're not going right. to get an audience yeah. for your next thing or the thing before, you know, if you can't advertise surrounding it. I feel like you'd get a solid 40 minutes of content out of that. It would be hard to pull off because right now news is a ratings magnet because news is so fucking insane right now. So you would actually have to prevent people from doing the news yes. in this hypothetical scenario. And like with HBO, I don't necessarily know that they would be allowed to do any news because they are a subscription-driven model. So anything they did would be profit-driven. And that's tough because then they would have a competitive program on and then people wouldn't have to watch the news. Right. Because to me, I think the only option should be you can either watch a news program, whichever one you like, or just not watch TV right now. Right. Like that's what I would want it to be. Because I wouldn't want HBO like, we're going to put Game of Thrones on during news hour. Like, right. yeah, everybody's going to watch Game of Thrones. Yeah, you know, no, like, it's like a nationwide blackout <laughs> exactly. for like a half hour or an Once hour week, every you, night. Yeah. You know, like, and you could still have Fox doing their Fox thing. Like, you could agree, okay, we're going to be like the further right wing thing. But it wouldn't be bullshit. It wouldn't be as as <laughs> awful as it as it currently yeah, is just across the board. I think they'd be honest about what they believed. Right. I think you'd get a more pure version of what they are. Yeah. You know, and maybe I would hate that more. I think if you don't have to make money on it, you're allowed to do it for ideological reasons. 
which yeah, is what right. I wanted the news to be. And I will admit that I watched a lot of that Will McAvoy newsroom show that led up to this, <laughs> which is ridiculous. But, you know. The newsroom? Yeah, the new- newsroom is very much the ideologue's version of how news should be. <laughs> but, like, I think, sure, why not? You know, like, I would like that to be true. <laughs> We broke 9-11. Yeah. We found out 9-11 was 9-11 before anyone else. Right. Yeah, yeah. And we did it the right way. Yeah. <laughs> With the news, it does seem like it's one of the few things that almost everyone agrees needs to work better. Like, not that everyone's doing a bad job of it, but just that the overall system of it and the overall way it's delivered and the overall way people are receiving it needs fixing. <laughs> like, in some yeah. way. Yeah. This is partly why I want reform. It's no longer a thing we can afford to not do a good job on. Yeah. It's like healthcare to me or like some version of having a defensible military. It's a thing that must exist right now. Yeah. You know, so like I want a version of it that other people can't force feed me things I don't want. I want to have consumer control over that if I could. And well, and also with like not everybody's tied to programming blocks anymore. Not everybody's watching things in real time. Yes. TV news, it just has to be that way. But right. with the internet, there's got to also be some extension of it to that too. I feel like what you'd really get is editorial that you want, like professional yeah. analysis during that hour. And that would be interesting, you know, instead of like, is it impeachment finally? Like that. I mean, <laughs> right. there were so many things like that. Will uh, he be impeached? Is this the smoking gun? No. Question mark. Yeah. But right. That, you know what I mean? Like, here's an hour pro- broadcast of people saying yes or no. And like, right. All right, who cares? You know? Yeah. There's a thing in Japan called a delay pass that they give out on a bus or a plane or a train if it's delayed. And you can oh. like just turn it in at school or work. And it's like an official thing. So it's like. I was delayed 15 minutes. This is why I'm delayed. That's so good. Just like, uh, why wouldn't we have that? It's like a government hall pass. Right. That's yeah. so good. Could yeah. you imagine if Los Angeles had that, like, oh, uh, with traffic? Long. But also everybody would be like, oh, yeah, the delay pass guy was delayed. That right? is also yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, it would just... It would be Inception Just of layers of the dog yeah. eating my homework would keep... Right, right. Yeah, people would find a way to lie. I don't That's mean great. to shit on it. It's a good idea. No, That's no. I, I love that somebody thought of that. That's so good. Yeah. It's no, it's it's fantastic, like, yeah. especially for school. I feel like we forget as adults how much when we were in school, our life was driven by little slips of paper from adults, and oh, like having one to, of those would be so nice. I used to fucking like drive ninety miles per hour down like the shoulder of I ninety five to school, just like trying to get there in time because it was like zero tolerance. Yep. It was like you're yeah. late, you're late, and yeah. sorry, man. Yeah, <laughs> too That's bad. Right. <laughs> That's Hit true. a lot of people, man. Yeah. Hit a, lot a lot of people, people died for that no tolerance <laughs> policy. Yeah. I think a lot more major characters and works from fiction should be public domain. And in particular, I did a video for this site at one point about how Batman and Superman should be that. Because specifically, both those characters are being very tightly controlled by incompetent people in, in the movie space. And so I think we should give those over to... Not just them, but also people who want to use them, because then that's how you keep those characters alive at all and keep them going. I mean, full disclosure, I want to say that I've had over an hour of conversations at Cracked about ways that Batman and Superman could be better. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, and like, not, and not like, for business reasons, generally, like, we actually care that much. Yeah. Right. You know, and it's a bummer that, that certain people are just limited. And like what access they get to shape these narratives because they're important for us. Right. And it becomes like a thing where people have so much writing on it. Dana Gould, who we talked to on last week's episode, has this thing where he says, have you ever eaten at Disneyland? 
and was it a great meal? And it's like, no, <laughs> no. because you're making food for everyone right. and like you just need to make it inoffensive. And yes. I feel like that's the same thing that happens with Superman and Batman is like, for the most part, they don't want to take risks with it. Batman, right. they gave to Nolan for three movies after Joel Schumacher had basically rendered it radioactive and they were like, fuck it, fine. You arty British guy, go do a Batman movie. And like that worked out well for them. But like for the most part, you're going to get the Batman versus Superman's of the world, just like kind of watered down horse shit. And it's also a thing that they know they are squatting on and preventing us from getting like in 1998, there was yet another copyright extension law and it was lobbied before that the copyrights were for the length of the author's life and 50 years after that. So that's, that's a pretty long term. Like the author and their kids will get to make money off of it exclusively. And then in 1998, they extended it even more because Disney specifically (laughs) lobbied them because Mickey Mouse was going to go public domain. Right. And they specifically wanted that character. And if they hadn't done that, Superman would have gone public domain in 2013 and Batman in 2014. As of a law from Bill Clinton's time, that's the only reason only Zack Snyder can make Batman and Superman yeah. movies. But I would take it further. I would say like every piece of like literature or IP should have like a 50 year. Yeah. And that's yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. It, it should it, just it should be, be like, renewable. Again, it's capitalism making things like less efficient. Capitalism yeah. works in a lot of ways, yes. but like in the way that like big, huge behemoth corporations can just change the rules like, yeah. right. to make it less efficient. Like that doesn't work so great. Yeah, and if if you like those characters and want them to still be things, then you want more than one company to be able to make stories about them. Because that's we like Robin Hood, we like Sherlock Holmes. We there's still King Arthur movies, and and there's also multiple people can make them. Right. I was just going to say that that's the other reason is that you would stop seeing King Arthur movies and stop seeing (laughs) there. We've talked about before. There are thirteen Robin Hood movies in development right now because Robin Hood is one of the public domain characters. We keep seeing Alice in Wonderland movies because Alice in Wonderland is a public domain property. But ideally you'd get things like Fables. Have you read that comic book Fables? No. Well, Fables is a bunch of public domain people from a a fable land, like Snow White and things like that, come and live in New York because they have to escape. It's awesome. It's not good all the time, but it's like, what a great idea. And it's yeah. like just a comic book series on that. Yeah. You know, well, like, or you get like, admittedly, it was a bad movie, but League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Was good a bunch idea. Of public domain yes. Victorian novel characters put together into a whole new thing. Or, and so then some people know who Alan Quatermain is because Quatermain, I forget how to pronounce it, <laughs> where otherwise no one would even know who that is if it was locked down somehow. Or you wouldn't get things like, we can't ever have a good Hemingway movie, like a good movie of a Hemingway <laughs> novel. Because he refused to let up the rights to that. Oh, wow. Or, yeah. or Salinger. You know what I mean? Who, like, yeah. I get it. He doesn't like movies, but so? He's dead. Oh, like, he loved movies. He just but he didn't was think, an asshole. Right. He was, <laughs> right. So, but, like, I also feel like, well, once a lifetime of an artist is over, why are we rewarding that legacy yeah. at that point when it's our interest that keeps it alive, not him? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, we yeah. should be able to do that. Anyway. At the same time, Wes Anderson has been making Salinger movies for yes. his entire career. <laughs> Well, and there, That's fair. And one other benefit of public domaining, in particular Batman and Superman, is then DC can tell us all to shut up and make a better movie yeah. if we're so smart, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, That's fair. Because we don't have their money, but it's like, okay, no, we gave you the rights. Go write a better idea if we're so dumb, you know? Yeah. Like, hey. They have been a little more adventurous with their comic books, so it's weird that they're not sure, yeah. as willing to do it with their movies, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is 
also how plays work like Shakespeare yeah. plays and right. stuff like that. You just like put them on over and over again and people do interesting things with them in new contexts. So, and it yeah. gives them a life, like it gives them a cultural importance that they can't have if somebody's trying to control what it can be. Right. right. Yeah. You know, yeah. if somebody tells me this is the only way Hamlet can be, well, guess what? I don't care about Hamlet. Right. I don't care. Or you only happen to care about it if they lucked out and that one person who gets to make it did a good job. Yeah. And they need to win the lottery every time. They right. need to, the one person to nail it every time, which won't happen. One quick one polymer banknotes, just paper money is fucking filthy. Polymer is. <laughs> material that other countries make their uh, money out of that you can't tear it and it's impossible to counterfeit. And they didn't list being clean as one of the things about it, but there are tons of materials that we have that like bacteria and like dirt doesn't stick to. So make money out of that. It's fucking gross. I have two very brief election reform things that are not the obvious ones. One of them is I think all campaigns should be government financed and there should be a fund and everybody should get a slice of that money and they should have to account for it and run a campaign based on a finite amount of money. Mm-hmm. And which I know is a little political, but nonetheless. And two, they should select in a lottery the <clears throat> order in which the states get to vote or caucus every single election. Oh. So it's not always Iowa. It's not always Iowa. Like yeah. sometimes it's yeah, 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 sometimes yeah. it starts in Vermont or whatever. You know, like that would be so fun yeah, yeah. if it was like the NBA lottery. Yeah. Which we just like, had last night. Like it's finally coming up <laughs> yes. Dakotas. You know, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why don't they do that? Like who said it should start in Iowa? You know like right. That's silly, but I also want like New you want Hampshire the telecast. trades the first round pick in the twenty twenty <laughs> election for right. they're looking at twenty twenty four. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, South yeah. Dakota's rebuilding, so I think <laughs> it tanked. Hey, speaking of tanking for NBA draft picks, Adam, you had an idea for I guess the NFL, but it could apply to a lot of different sports, right? So one of the things that I think it's fair to say Alex and I have talked at some length about on the site in various formats is that our professional sports, they're broken. They're broken morally in one way or the other, right? Yeah. Um, Especially the NFL, but others as well. And one of the reasons I think that they're not working correctly is that they're actually not a capitalist enterprise anymore. So like what that means is, you know, everybody's probably somewhat aware of this, but like most sporting leagues like the NFL and the, the NBA and baseball at least all do profit sharing. So, like, they all get a slice of money, depending on the size of their market or whatever, from the TV ads and from the deals they sign with major networks and stuff, basically so that a lot of these other expansion teams in the leagues can exist. So, like, there wouldn't be, like, a Pelicans, for instance, if there wasn't a TV (laughs) deal for the NBA um, or a Jacksonville Jaguars or whatever, you know. I feel like that's one of the problems with it is that the leagues have to prop up these bad teams that people don't want because of the economic sharing. But also... It's too uh, communist for your team. A little bit, yeah, a little right. bit. That's just not yeah. how America should be well, in my de- opinion. Like, definitely socialist. It, yeah, it, definitely. It is right. literally that. Right, yeah. it is that. And also, we punish people for trying to get a competitive advantage, which I acknowledge, like, sometimes I feel strongly about that. But, like, we're still talking about we should punish Barry Bonds and dudes like that for taking steroids. And, like, as though there's a sort of purity in, in old baseball or something. Right. But everybody right. was on amphetamines of course. for the entire 20th century. That's right. Like, in to 1910, an insane degree. In 1910, they threw brown baseballs you couldn't see. 
You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes, you couldn't even see the baseball. Like, they only outlawed the spinner in like right. the sixties. Like, so people. What's getting, the spinner? The spitter. So like, oh, where, the spitball. Yeah, yeah the yeah. spitball. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So it's not like it's always been the same old game, right? You know. Uh, <laughs> and those guys are just already in the Hall of Fame, so right. there's nothing to be done about it. Right. Yeah. There's no asterisk next to Mordecai Three Finger Brown. You know, like right. for throwing a brown ball from a mound that's ten feet high. <laughs> you know, right? Or like. Gaylord Perry, I think, was super famous for. Spitter. Oh, he just did the spitter all the time. Yeah. And it worked, and he's all the Hall of Famer. Guy's got a great spitter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, just that like was his whole deal. On the ball. <laughs> that was his whole deal. Yeah, yeah he I, used to I, pitch from the high dive. <laughs> <laughs> like pitch from 30 feet in the air. <laughs> they couldn't hit him. Right. Nobody right. knows why. He shot the batter with a musket. <laughs> right. yeah, it was fine. It's whatever. Right. In the 70s. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I think that we have the wrong idea about how we should be doing sports. I look at sports and I think this is about what are the limits of human capability performed for entertainment. That's the point of it. So like, why do we have these weird limitations to prop up the structures that enable it? I just think that's weird, you know? So my solution is that all the teams actually have to compete in a fair market. That's what it would have to be. So you couldn't do profit sharing. You'd have to agree on the rules of the sport, yeah. right? Like that, I think that I, don't, I wouldn't want like that. I would want there to be some centralized, this is how the rules go. Mm-hmm. But like, otherwise teams are allowed to make as much money as they make. And therefore, they can woo free agents or whatever based on how much money they have. And like, we just have an actual competitive sports league like that. Right. No luxury tax. Yeah. Which, if you don't follow sports, that's where there's a salary cap. But then also, some leagues have a luxury tax where if you're paying all of your players combined over a certain amount of money, then you have to pay a penalty to the league on top of that. Right. The thing that I think personally offends me the most, and I, we've talked about this, is the idea of a salary cap. Yeah. Like, that super bothers me. It bothers me that a guy like LeBron James can only make a certain amount of money because that's the most that a player can be paid to do right. his job. That guy's worth all of the NBA's money. Like, he should make all of it because he's such a star. You know, like, that's yeah. what I want to see. So yeah. it's crazy that he can make the same amount of money as Russell Westbrook, who's also good, but, like, not as interesting as LeBron James. Come on. Yeah. Well, I think it's maybe the worst in the NBA because they have that max contract concept and so many people get them. So there will be random right. guys where like in the middle of the t- 2000s, it's like, right. oh, Richard Lewis is one of the highest paid players. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, why? He's not yeah. necessarily in the top 10 players. They just upped it to a couple years ago, or maybe it was last year. And Mike Conley is the highest paid <laughs> player. <laughs> in the, Very a good player. Right. He's like uh, he's good. the 12th best point guard yeah. in the league. Very good. Yeah. But he's not. Uh, Pretty good. Yeah. Well, and also, and if you're sitting at home saying, who's Mike Conley? Like, that's why he shouldn't be paid the most. Because, like, these guys also bring in merchandising dollars for their teams. They bring in just notoriety and fame for their teams. Like, there's a profit value to having one of the players you've heard of. There was kind of a genre of sports story when I was growing up that was all about the overpaid athlete and how overpaid these guys were because people that we had grown up watching only made like $200,000 a year. Not that I grew up watching, but the like that the sports writers of my youth grew up watching, like only made $200,000 a year and were like travel agents in the off season right. and like right. you know, so there's a purity just, to that right that's what they wanted to go back to and economists have since then looked at the math and yet even athletes in this like overpaid inflated salary they say are some of the most underpaid employees in terms of what value they bring to 100%. the companies that they work for compared to what they're paid they're among the most underpaid employees in America doesn't it just sound like a scheme from somebody who's richer 
to be like these athletes are earning too oh, much sure. money. No way. Yeah. How could they possibly be? Right. Like I think the owners are overpaid. Yes, I think <laughs> yeah. so too. They don't do <laughs> shit. Like you it wouldn't hurt the enjoyment of any fan no. if you just like changed the ownership. Uh, the uh, unless they're bad at it. That's right. the only yeah, problem. Yeah. But also like I, I think we need to get rid of the idea that sports teams have to be profitable. Like right. I mean that's a little bit wild, but like if you own a sports team Let's just say you randomly own the New Orleans Pelicans, right? Who I think is a good example of a bad sports team to own. Thanks like, a lot. <laughs> I'm sorry, New Orleans, to pick on you. Uh, but Pelicans, come on. Anyway, so like if you own that team, you already have done fine in life. Like you're not hurting right. for money. You know what I mean? It's a luxury thing. It's not even about making money with that investment. It's not that. Because you have to have so much free capital to own one of those teams that it's, it can't possibly be an earning enterprise. It's about flash. It's yeah. about status. It's about joining a club. That's what it's about. So why do I care if they make money on that team? Why yeah. should I? Bill Veck, who on the White Sox, was one of the last few people who owned a sports team to actually earn money from owning the sports team. And that was back in the 70s, I think, 70s or 80s. Like, that's kind of gone away. And now they talked to uh, – I read an interview with Fred Wilpon, who owned the, owns the Mets, and he was saying that – the main value of the Mets in business is just that like he can make more deals with his actual company that makes money. The right. Mets are not how he puts food on the table. It's just something he bought because he could. You know? Well, the, the owners of the Dodgers before Magic bought them, that couple that got divorced, I forgot their yeah. name. But that couple was trying to make a profit on that team. And oh, okay. what happened is they started making false companies and basically trading <laughs> on the value of the team to own luxury stuff. Yeah. Right. That's what happened. The McCourts. That's who it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's literally what they did, and it was a nightmare. Everybody was really mad uh, for a <laughs> long time, and like their divorce was going to determine the fate of that team. Right. That's what you don't want. Like I don't want people to need to make revenue off the Dodgers. I need them to like have the money already. You Just know, hang like, out and, and get out of the way. Just like I think so that is like how the best owners tend to view it. Like the Steve Ballmers and like people yes. like that. They purchase the teams almost as if they're yachts. It's like, right. hey, you can tell I'm yeah. rich because I own this team over here. Whereas the worst owners are the owners of the Bucks who made Ugh. the city of Milwaukee pay for yes. the stadium in order to keep them. And that's a shitty thing that happens. That that's a thing that happens everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Like yeah. the Atlanta Braves just had a new stadium made in like the 90s, I want to say. Yeah. And they're building another one, a tax funded one. It's like, why? Like, what do you need it for? That's like a regular occurrence where right. we just need an updated stadium. So like, sorry, it's going to, here's $400 million that we got to get somewhere. NFL teams are back in Los Angeles now, but that was how the NFL threatened every other city in the country into building right. them stadiums because right. they said, oh, this team will move to Los Angeles if you don't pay for our stadium. Right. And instantly become a lot more valuable yeah. uh, because of the obvious reasons. To me, it's like, well, yeah, we shouldn't be able to hold a city hostage, but also we should have people who aren't trying to run this thing for profit so that if St. Louis really wants a team, they can have it. Right. Some rich guy wants to own a team there. Great. Good for them. That's how I think it should go. I want to take it a step further sure. and say that I think it would be interesting if you took <laughs> that to the level of pure capitalism, including no rules against steroid use. Basically, each team would be as good as their scientists are. And <laughs> yeah. then you would have people with like posters of scientists on their wall. That would be interesting. Like, yeah, uh, right. It would yeah. be NASCAR. Right. Like it's, it yeah. yeah, exactly. It would be basically like NASCAR. Uh, there are those ads that are like basically jokes about like, what if we all like followed this female scientist? Wouldn't that be great? And like people are like, woo, 
cheering for a Nobel laureate. And it's like, no, that could actually be true if you just had steroid use and like performance enhancing. That would be interesting. It, It would expose something that we already kind of know and are still learning about sports right now, which is the only way teams like the Oakland Athletics or like the San Antonio Spurs can compete is by having some kind of an intellectual or statistical edge. Right. Right? Yeah. Like, they can't compete with, like, Boston or Los Angeles, which are destination places for sports. So they have to have the best scientists or the best analytics or the best this and that to get yeah. a competitive edge. And that would be cool if that was just – everybody has to do that to right. survive, you know? Yeah. I think the NBA is pretty close to mm-hmm. being what I'm talking about right now. Like, I'm pretty sure that LeBron is not naturally – just oh, for sure. getting better in At his 33? 14th year. Yeah, yeah no way. Uh, right. Yeah, he's having his best playoffs ever yeah. in his 14th year. I don't know necessarily that he's like in the back injecting his butt with like a syringe with Jose Canseco, but I, I think, you know, there are some edges that he knows about. I've also heard that he just lifts and like works on his body 99% more than anybody else does. Like, he's lifting weights after games and stuff. Wow. There's no doubt that guy's body is, like, unique. Right. Like, that he yeah. has he has the magic body. We had a big scuttlebutt, like, 10 years ago, if you remember about Kobe, like, doping his blood. You know, like, he would go to Germany and, like, swirl yeah. some platelets around in a superconductor or some shit and, like, bring him back and his knees be fine. <laughs> so, like, what's happened since then? Who knows? LeBron definitely does, though. Yeah, like some weird technology, right? <laughs> or like, didn't Peyton Manning go to Europe and get <laughs> bizarre neck surgery or something to continue playing? I think Germany's where it all happens. But also, yeah. his wife got all those right. uh, steroids that were sent to her. Yeah, you know, her human growth hormone. So You'll like, just hear doing stuff it. about people all the yeah. time. Yeah. Right. yeah, he got his head reattached. Peyton Manning. It's <laughs> crazy. Here are my cons. The things that that occurred to me. So like. Are either of you guys familiar with Premier League soccer? Yeah. So Premier League soccer is, I think, the biggest actual sport in the world. Right. Or like one of them, right? Yeah. So the way they manage that league is essentially kind of like what I'm talking about. Yeah. And what sucks is only four teams can win, basically. Right. It's like one of the three London teams or the Manchester City United teams. Like those are the teams that can win with rare exceptions. So like I think that's what would happen in most sports. New York's going to have a team that's always a competitor. Los Angeles is always going to have a competitor. And like a team like Milwaukee, Milwaukee anything, can't compete. Right. You know, right. Like that's just not going to happen because players want to play in cool places to live, you know, and they will have more money because more fans. That's a problem. Also, you said it'll be like NASCAR. That's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of like jerseys being like slathered with ads. So yeah, like which is collides- a soccer thing. Yeah. yeah a big thing. It would look like a kaleidoscope nightmare of just like. Yeah. What is this team even, you know, like, because NASCAR cars look awful. Right. Um, that, that's a concern <laughs> I have, too. Those are my two biggest concerns. I don't know. Do you have any other? Yeah, I mean, the only uh, other maybe analog to look at is within baseball, there are those Latin American academies, and you hear bad things about how the people yeah. in them are treated, because baseball is the one sport where part of the player pipeline is more capitalist. Because also, yes. if we made these leagues completely capitalist, I think we would stop having drafts. We have minor the... leagues in all of them, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But even baseball will have a draft for, like, American-born players. And then just if you're from Latin America, you just get kind of picked up by these random trainers when you're 14 or 15 and right. brought to an academy and, like, put up in this door. People and it's, would, you know, it's un- completely unchecked capitalism, which right. is bad sometimes. People would be buying know. the mating rights to LeBron's sperm. Yeah, like, it'd be like right. horse racing. In the same way that horse <laughs> yes. racing is, like... No, yeah. Yeah. And because he's not in that, he was still, like, very weirdly a 
observed throughout middle school and right. high school, but he was at least kind of in a system with some rules. You right. know, he, it, there's some benefits to that for like the treatment of teenagers. I think I will uh, say once again, I think that LeBron is the most remarkable athlete. I grew up like a huge Jordan fan, but sure. I still think what LeBron did to be seen as like, you're going to be the greatest player in the world when you grow up as like a 13 year old. Yeah. And then to become the greatest player in the world is fucking insane. He really is amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's time to start talking about, is he the greatest athlete ever? Like he's, yeah. in, he's in that zone at this yeah. point, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I think if you are just talking about pure athletics, I think as a specimen, like I, I think he probably has to be considered the greatest athlete ever just because of, what his body can do like, or without Williams. breaking down. Yeah. yeah. The only person maybe up there is Babe Ruth because he was kind of a freak of nature too. Yeah. Because but, of I abuse. Mean, that's like his, right. that's, that's how you measure how good he was. <laughs> right. You could eat like 18 hot dogs before a, before a game or whatever. Yeah. For yeah. Most, of yes. his, most of the games in the, in the well, season and, when he hit 60 home runs. That's correct. Well, and he like got into his sport as a pitcher and then just became the best hitter of all time and reinvented it after that. You know, yeah. it's, it's a really bizarre freak thing too, but he hasn't been a, examine the way LeBron has, so it's hard to tell exactly how that all came to be. And he only had to play against a few races a person. You know, it's a different... That, yeah, that's, yeah. That, that matters for sure. Uh, yeah. They were like, Germans? We don't let Germans in this league. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> yeah. All right. That was a lot of fun. Hope you enjoyed it too. On to some brief footnotes. Uh, we're going to link to a New York Times article called Seeking the Truth in Refuse, uh, which is about William Rathje, the garbologist from the University of Arizona that I made reference to. We're going to link off to a NPR article and corresponding podcast about Utah's experiment with the four-day work week, a CNN Money article about how the four-day work week worked out for some employees. We're going to link to that Slate article we referred to that explains why making Election Day a holiday wouldn't really work. But I think Civics Week could really get around some of the critiques that Slate comes up with. We're going to link to an NPR podcast and article about a Stanford professor who uh, lost a political battle to simplify the tax filing process that Alex was referring to. It's pretty infuriating. He gets kind of steamrolled by TurboTax, big tax collecting. And finally, we're going to link off to one of my favorite podcasts, the Cracked Podcast about real superpowers and new human senses, where I interview a couple people about that idea of inventing new human senses with technology. And we'll link off to a Cracked video called Why Everyone Wins If Batman and Superman Are Public Domain. And that's going to do it for this week. Thanks to Engineer Brett for putting this episode together. You can follow him at Brett, R-A-D-E-R. On Twitter, you can follow me at Jack underscore O-B-R-I-E-N. And we'll be back next week with more podcast. Talk to you then. Foster. And I'm Deanna Chang. Since we started the OMFG podcast, people have asked us, what's your show all about? And we're like, can't you tell from the title? 
Well, no. Okay, so it's basically a show about how to be less old. Then why don't you just call it that? Great idea. OMFG is now How to Be Less Old. Each week, Emily and I talk to the hippest young people around to get woke to the hot new trends and pop culture moments. So that we and you can stay eternally lit. Listen to How to Be Less Old every Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.